Welcome to Rector's Cupboard, a podcast for people who are interested in questions of culture and faith. We ask these questions from outside the institutional structures of religion. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you enjoy and benefit from the conversation. Welcome to Rector's Cupboard. We are grateful tonight to be recording with more people present than just hosts and interview guests. We are right now in the studio garage of Reflector Project and have a small audience present. That's them. One reason for gathering tonight, or our reason for gathering tonight, is to speak about mental health and to hear from two psychologists, two professionals whose area of expertise is diagnosis and treatment of many of the mental health disorders with which we are familiar. We are here to talk about mental health challenges at this moment in time and about mental health challenges in the days ahead as COVID finally, hopefully, wanes. Did you feel great before COVID, that time that we're longing for? What are our hopes now for mental health and into the future? How can we help one another? Particularly, how can we be compassionate and patient with one another, including uh, with those whom we disagree? Be compassionate. Everyone you meet is engaged in a great struggle. We are aiming for that compassion and also for understanding. Thank you for listening and for those of you who are here for joining us tonight, uh, you can go to rectorscupboard.ca for information on the podcast, for previous episodes, and to contact us about this or other episodes. Allison Williams is here, co-host on the mic tonight. I am. Hello. And is going to introduce our guest for us. Yes, uh, I'm pleased to introduce our guest. We have uh, with us tonight Dr. Rami Nader, who holds degrees in biology and psychology from the University of British Columbia in Victoria, er, sorry, here in Vancouver. Uh, he's a registered psychologist specializing in cognitive behavioral therapy. He's uh, director at the North Shore Stress and Anxiety Clinic and specializes in diagnosis and treatment of anxiety disorders. Uh, Dr. Nader has a special focus on first responders and is qualified as an expert witness in the BC Supreme Court. Uh, he's also an adjunct professor at UBC uh, and has a YouTube channel on which he posts videos on matters such as PTSD, anxiety and depression, among other topics. Uh, with us tonight, we also have uh, Dr. Michael Papsdorf, who is a registered psychologist and a director at North Shore Stress and Anxiety Clinic. Uh, Dr. Papsdorf often works with families and children in treating childhood anxiety and other mental health diagnosis. He is also a supervisor of grad student trainees at UBC and has described his work recently as helping people and families to stay sane in what might currently be called a mad, mad world. So here, here. welcome here, tonight. Thank, Thank you, you for being here. <laughs> Maybe I can just Thank speak you. to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, we'd love it if you guys could tell us a little bit about yourselves, maybe how you got into psychology and what interests you specifically in terms of your study of psychology or your vocation. Uh, Dr. Papsdorf, why don't you start us off? Okay. Um, I sort of fell into uh, psychology uh, quite a few <laughs> years ago. Um, and uh, I was an undergraduate. I enjoyed helping people at a brief stint in computer science. Realized that I uh, probably wasn't going to date if I stayed in computer science. So <laughs> started taking some uh, psych reason. courses and yeah, quite enjoyed them and, and uh, decided, hey, this seems like the way to go. Started off working with adults. Uh, and then summer after my master's, uh, ended up 
doing a practicum, wanting to stay uh, locally at uh, BC Children's Hospital, hmm. uh, and realized what was I thinking? Working with uh, adults, uh, working with kids is way better. <laughs> is um, it? <laughs> it? It. You still me, have to you know, talk to the adults. You have to deal <laughs> with the parents. Well, <laughs> I, I, I try not. To, <laughs> okay. So, um, and uh, yeah, just changed everything and haven't looked back since. It's been amazing. Oh, that's great. And Dr. Nader, how about you? How did you land here? It's a similar similar type of story, falling backwards into it. Um, I initially intended to go to medical school. And so while I was went through three years of applications for medical school and three failed applications for medical school, I was... Um, I took some under some unclassified studies and most of them were psychology. I found that I really enjoyed it. Then with like no preparation ended up in grad school. And, uh, and then, you know, it was uh, a providential experience because I ended up with a, a fantastic supervisor, ended up in an internship I probably didn't deserve to be in and uh, ended up where, where I am. So and, it's, and did you guys meet each other in school or? He, he was my first uh, he teaching assistant. Teaching assistant. He taught me in my first uh, you assessment. You mean he was a teaching ass- assistant, assistant in the you class you were taking? In a, in a student. Ah. I was a graduate student and I was doing my first assessment of a client and he was behind the mirror watching me. And he still <laughs> feels like that to this And day. I gave him the best <laughs> advice he's gotten in all that time. Yeah, yeah. Best piece of advice ever. And what was that? Well, I, I asked the client, the, the assessment was going really smoothly and I asked the client, um, so tell me about your strengths and weaknesses. And once I did that, she like just folded up and like just shut down completely. And so afterwards I went behind the, uh, the mirror and I asked him, I was like, oh, so what did you think? He's like, when you asked that question, like, what were you thinking? And I said, well, you know, the, the, I te- wanted the answer, the teacher told us that's what you should ask. And then he said, never ask that question again. And I never and you, did. And I never have. It was too much like a job interview. And that's exactly what she said. It was too much like a job interview. Yeah. So especially oh. in Canada, right? I yeah. can see Tell that. me your weaknesses. I, I was wondering how you guys might sum up some of the changes in, cause it hasn't been that long that you've been in the fields. Like we're not talking decades and decades. Um, but even in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, I would imagine there's been a lot of change Absolutely. in psychology, psychiatry. You're, you're specifically in the area of cognitive psychology, but looking at kind of the wider picture, what have been some of the major changes that you've seen culturally and in terms of, uh, practice? Well, the most interesting one, obviously in the most, you know, in the last 18 months, uh, telehealth, the advent of tele, uh, telemedicine, telepsychology. Uh, uh, Dr. Nader and I have been doing it for a frightening number of years since I think the mid, no, late 2000s. So you've been involved um, in telehealth way before COVID. Yes. Yeah, we were doing it with um, remote northern uh, communities, uh, um, okay. providing services to people up there. Um, and then, but not at the level that we're uh, doing it now, not yeah. with quite as much uh, not not the same ease that we can do it now. So yeah, that's one of the big trends is just that it's it's becoming more accessible. Yeah, certainly that that has been a big one, and I think that's one that is not going to that that the toothpaste is out of the tube on that yeah, one. Yeah, you I, see I, like ads on CNN now for whole businesses. Yeah, that are so I think absolutely. I think that is something that is definitely crossed over. I I don't think it will ever fully replace in person psychology mm-hmm. sessions, but it certainly has become a viable alternative for people when they just don't have access. Does it work as well? Do you, what do you guys find? It works pretty well. Yeah. It works pretty well. Um, 
I find that you lose some of the nuances and the interpersonal feeling of being yeah, in a room. Yeah. Uh, I remember mm. one client years ago um, that I was working with uh, uh, in one of the northern communities, and I, I met him over telehealth, and he seemed like a like a really reasonable guy, mm. um, but he was just having all of these problems with his, you know, the community and people in the community. I was like, I don't understand what's going yeah. on here. And so we traveled up there, and I visited <laughs> him, and I had a, an in-person <laughs> session with him. And just being in the room with him, you got yeah. this really, <laughs> this really uncomfortable interpersonal vibe with them. Which it was like, nice. and so you could, you could pick up the personality disorder stuff. Um, yeah. That's just really being in the room with them. I, I, we uh, interviewed a, a professional mediator last fall. And yeah. He, right about this time last fall. Yeah. He's moved to doing exclusively. Right. Um, I think almost, almost all, well entirely. at that point it was exclusive. Yeah. yeah. Right, Cause of COVID. So, and he said there are benefits actually to some of the, you know, doing it telehealth online stuff. Right. Um, yeah. He said, because some of the walls that people put up, they don't maybe have in there if they're sitting in their kitchen or something talking to you and stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. And he said in terms of if he, he does mediation, so he might be watching a screen with like a bunch of people right. and he can, when he does mediation in person, um, he actually watches the people who aren't talking, you know, cause he wants to see their, their visual cues and yeah. how they're relating. He said with zoom, he could entirely do that. Yeah. You know, so there's, it's interesting how these kind of changes have happened. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, yeah. it's uh my answer to that would be it, it depends because it's also, it's a, it's a bit of a different animal with uh, with kids, for example. So mm. yeah. uh, six-year-olds don't do very well on <laughs> hour-long, you know, <laughs> Zoom sessions. So. Really? Um, That's why it's really? a struggle for me. Yeah, <laughs> as it turns out. So, and you know, they're, they're like, I, I go sessions where I'm like, okay, I'm going to you know, need you to come back in the frame or, uh, right. um, uh. you know, like, you know, I can <laughs> see the top, your, you know, the tops of your head. So you, you do miss that. And then you have the thing that you don't, that I've yet to have happen in, you know, uh, in person, which is, you know, the, the tech issues that we're experiencing yeah. tonight. Right. Yes. So like, you know, so anyway, it was really hard for me when, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm. And you're like, I'm yeah. hanging on the edge of my seat. Yeah. Really attentive or something in it. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I would imagine that's hard to, to make like accurate kind of like assessments and actually help your patients when they're doing that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so it, it works great with some. I mean, the biggest thing for me is it, it's improved accessibility so yeah. much yeah. Um, to people. So. Mm -hmm. And as, as we look kind of, as we're still kind of getting to know you guys and, and do a little more introductory kind of conversation, what I think I have some suspicions, but I, I'd love to, to hear your guys' perspectives. Um, what you find particularly rewarding about your work? Like, what do you see that what you're doing is making a difference? I know that there's big, obvious things. Right. Like, I don't want anyone on the other side listening to this think that I'm like, right. therapy's bad. I don't see any point. That's because not I'm what I'm meaning. <laughs> oh my yeah. goodness. Why do you bother? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Um, well, for me, I mean, one of the, my practice has changed um, over the years, and I'm doing a lot more in terms of medical legal assessments and independent uh, assessments for for things like insurance companies or um, or civil litigation and that sort of thing. And and one of the things I do, one area that I do a fair bit of work in, is in, in what's called WCAT appeals. So somebody has a work safe claim, and they've been denied. Um, for a psychological injury. Mm. And, um, and then they go through this process of reviewing, uh, the review division reviews the decision as to deny their claim. And then 
if the person has still been denied, they can take it to an external body called WCAT, which allows them to hmm. appeal to an outside body outside of WorkSafe. Now, one of the things I found is that there's tremendous variability in the quality of psychological assessments mm. that people will get through this process. And I've seen a lot of people have claims denied, not because they don't have a legitimate psychological claim, but because the interview was really poorly mm. done. Uh. And so when I get an opportunity mm. to assess that person, I'm able to generate a report and then they're able to use it as part of their appeal. And that literally does change their life in yeah. terms of income yeah. and in terms of, you know, they're not going to lose their house now. So that's one of the things that's really uh, that I find yeah. a lot of value in, in doing assessments, which is something you wouldn't think would be, you know, you're not really <laughs> helping people uh, well, doing an assessment, but Clearly. you are. Yeah. I like that. That's mm -hmm. good. Uh, good consideration. And for, for you, Dr. Papstorff, working with children and families, you must see some I, I, yeah, I, I still, I mean, I've been practicing for into the decades uh, now, a couple, well, not quite a couple, but, uh, um, and I still, I'm like, wait a minute, they pay me to help kids for a living. This is a good gig. I shouldn't talk too loudly mm. about it. Somebody's going to, um, <laughs> it's, know. it's amazing when you get invited into the life of a family mm. and a child, you get, um, to be involved in their story and you get to watch them, uh, make progress and, one of the coolest things working with kids is um, you can teach them skills that if they were taught, you know, in school uh, earlier, they would take and run with, uh, teach them skills that just really literally changed the trajectory oh, of their lives. So yeah. Yeah. I literally, before we got here, um, I got a text uh, and I had to look at it. I was like, why is somebody texting me a picture of their their degree, their bachelor's degree. Uh, one of my clients who uh, was struggling a tremendous amount a few years ago um, just graduated oh, and was awesome. sending it to me uh, to say thanks. And because he's graduated, uh, he changed his field and he was really reluctant to do this, but we talked it through and he decided to. And now he's got a job in his field and he's like, I can't believe it's real. It's the most amazing <laughs> thing. And yeah. I'm like, I get to be there along the journey. Yeah, that's so, really great. I mean, how, how cool is that? Oh, thanks. Mm -hmm. That's so good. So. Yeah. Um, so at this particular moment, I, I think that everyone, uh, both that's that's here in our studio as well as those who are going to be listening to the podcast, uh, I don't think it's going to be a surprise that mental health is is kind of a very big cultural conversation at sure. the moment. There's some pretty obvious <laughs> things about why that would be. Um, but do you think that there are particular challenges that we're facing mental health wise now? And that could be related to the pandemic or it could just be other cultural things. We don't just have to talk about COVID. Right. <laughs> I would say absolutely. I mean, the, what COVID has done, what the pandemic has done is it's done, well, it's sort of done two things. One, it's cranked up the pressure, mm -hmm. right? So it's added this underlying layer of stress to almost everything we do. I had a client the other day say, oh, actually, it doesn't even bother me anymore. I don't even think about COVID anymore. And I was like, oh, interesting. You know, we're doing this over video, right? <laughs> um, and when you go out, you wear your mask. Like We've gotten kind of used to it, right, uh, but it's still there. The stress is still there. Um, and then it shined the light also on uh, so many different things that suddenly when uh, we're all, first of all, when we're spending all this time together, we weren't <laughs> planning on spending together. Uh, it highlights people's relationship difficulties. Yeah, I've within. read a lot about that. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, All of a sudden, people are spending time together, and they're like, I don't know if I like this. Yeah. yeah. And then, as a general rule, our mental health does not get better when we are isolated and yeah. not with mm. our with our homies, with our, our yeah. friends and our loved ones and whatnot. So it, uh, I think that's one of the biggest things. And 
Uh, I could talk for hours on all the <laughs> other things, I think. but uh. Well, yeah, I, I, I think I agree with all of that. And things also like not being able to get to the gym, like like physical mm. exercise yeah. for a lot yeah, of people. unless very yeah. important. Yeah, and so yeah. unless and you're... Once you stop, it's... Yeah. Yeah, and unless you're like really cool with like exercising by yourself outside, yeah. um, it's been really difficult for a lot of people mm. who really saw a lot of value in um, classes and uh, and spending time with friends and doing things together. Yeah. Um, another issue that I've found is that, you know, the idea of working from home sounded really, really good early on in the <laughs> pandemic. Uh, and there's some people that really, that really, it works really well for them. But I found that there's a lot of people that the isolation of working from home and you know what not having to get out of your pajamas to to go do your job has not been good for people yeah Yeah. Um, and there is just something about getting up in the morning getting dressed putting yourself together Hmm. and then walking out the door and fighting traffic and getting to work and being at work and talking to people at the the water cooler then getting back into your car and having that time to decompress as you drive home and so then when you get home home is home as opposed to home is your work office yeah, I think we can all kind of, most of us can identify with that feeling of, you know, um, even if we kind of like our jobs and we're going to somewhere to work, that like, oh, it's 10 to 8 or whatever it is now and I'm getting dressed and getting ready and oh, I wish I didn't have to go to work. But then when you go and you're with people, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it does improve your mental health for Absolutely. the most part. It can, have, it can bring its own challenges, obviously, <laughs> as well. well but that's, and, and bringing it right into this room, for me, so... If you'd said, "Hey, do you want to do this as a Zoom thing right. or whatever?" Um, I got a, I have a ten-month-old at home that I'd be that I do not leave easily. When you said we'll be doing it in person and they'll be human, I get to hang out with you know yeah. all you people. I'm like, "Yeah, no, I'm yeah. cool." And my wife was yeah. like, "My wife was like, yes, go, <laughs> please, <laughs> go, please." My, yes. That might be something else, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to don't zoom, wear your jammies. Zoom out a little more, and I have this kind of two pun intended. Question. It's uh, yeah, it's. Zoom out, yeah. Oh. The the uh, I would be like a I don't know high school debate class or something too. <laughs> so I I would think we would need to be decent at presenting either side of this argument. Uh, one side being we think about mental health, uh, we do not think about mental health enough, so we could make a case for that. And the other being uh, we think about mental health too much. So I don't know, you know, maybe each of you could take a stab at both or one of you choose <laughs> one. There must be ways in which, it, I, I suppose the first one's easier. We don't think about mental health enough. How would you say oh, yes? You, you take that one. No, you, okay. you, you, <laughs> yeah, you, want, you <laughs> both want the fun one. You can take, you can take the softball. How do we not think about mental yeah, health enough? We don't enough. think yeah. about mental health enough. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you hear a lot more about it now. Um, I think in, in sort of day-to-day, I think people still don't quite recognize how behavior and how their lifestyle does impact their mental health. Because what I find is that people will still push themselves really hard, right? And so I'll work with a lot of people who are working excessive hours, right? Um, who are in sort of industries or corporations where you know, they, they're expected to work and work and work mm-hmm. and they're working evenings, they're working weekends. And uh, I continue to sort of point out to them that, you know, part of the problem is they're, they're actually scaffolding a dysfunctional system, mm. right? That the, the, the company shouldn't be functioning this way, but the reason why it's able to get away with it is because you're hyper conscientious mm. and you're willing to sacrifice 
uh, your evenings and weekends. And so you're, they're mm-hmm. paying you for five days a week. You're giving them six or six and a half days a week. And yet people don't really make a connection between that and, wow, this is really affecting my mental health. So they health. could even be thinking about, oh, this might be causing me anxiety or this might, or, or they might think about those things, but they're not necessarily making the changes to actually... Typically, typically what I've noticed is that they come in to see me and I'm feeling just really anxious all the time. So and then aware and they can't that. articulate what it is. Exa- so okay. they're, they're feeling anxious, but they're uh. not making the connection between, well, yeah, I'm mm-hmm. working 70 hours a week and I'm running around from thing to thing to thing. Yeah. And that might be having an effect on why I'm so anxious, why I'm so tired, why mm. I'm so grumpy and irritable all the time. Yeah. Mm. Well put. And Dr. Pastor, if you want to take the, the, the mirror of that. We think about <laughs> yeah. mental health well, too I, much. Well, I was going to say, uh, um, I don't think we do, so I was going to shut it down. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I Dr. Think Nader would take us down. What's, what's interesting to me is uh, I, I kind of think we think too much in general. Um, uh, I have so yeah. many clients right now that go around and around and around and around um, trying to come up with, there's so many clients that are, they, I say, what's going on? How was your week? I've been overthinking. And I'm like, because you're underdoing, um, <laughs> right? Like you're not doing, um, and I mean, I have this kind of philosophy about decision-making. It's like, people are like, oh, I made the right decision or the wrong decision. I think that's the strangest thing because how do you know? Right. We, if it's we make a decision, well, n- if we make a decision and we like the outcome, we say, oh, oh that's good probably decision. the right decision. If we yeah, yeah. don't like the outcome, that's it probably right. was, but we can never evaluate the alternative. Huh. So yeah. how do we know well put. that the other one wouldn't have been better or wouldn't have been worse. Um, years ago, I'll give you the very short version of this story. Years ago, a dear friend of mine decided to leave work early, which she never, ever did. Decided to leave work early. Um, heading home, uh, is getting ready to turn into her driveway, and gets plowed from behind by a big truck. Um, severely injured, breaks her nose, like all kinds of uh, you know stuff, and goes through a process, like survives, but goes through a process of, why me? Why did I make that that decision? Mm. Clearly, that was a bad decision. Now, again, sort of simplifying the story a little bit, it rec- this accident required her to cancel her life or her bucket list dream trip of hiking to Everest Base Camp. Um, the group that she was supposed to hike with, most of them were killed in an avalanche during that hike. Now, as I as it's I like said, Alanis Morissette. As song. I said to her, I said. I said, uh, you actually don't know that necessarily right. you would have, that, that would, you still don't know that would have happened. But it's an interesting look into, she spent months going, why did I make yeah, this in, dumb in her decision? own head, kind of, and in her, yeah. I mean, it's writer Kurt Vonnegut, one of the favorite things that I yeah. read from him is, he, d- he said he didn't believe in God, but when he died and went to heaven, I get the answer. Uh, he would ask God um, one question, and that, and that is, uh, what was the good news and what was the bad news? Because he said, we can't, we can't tell yeah. here yeah. In, this, in this time yeah. and place. And I remember talking to my dad once when I was experiencing some, experiencing some mental health, health difficulty years ago. Called my dad, asked him if he'd ever struggled with some similar things. He said he had. I said, oh, it must have been brutal for you when you had, like, my sister and I. He was a single dad in yeah. the 70s. And, and so to your whole thing of, like, doing as opposed he's like no then when i was like really stressed and busy and whatever my my mental health was actually better in in some ways because i just Mm. had to go i just had to keep exactly going and that's kind of what i was getting at with the question is sometimes do we think too much about how we feel 
Yeah. And, yeah. and how, and I would imagine some of the cognitive uh, behavior therapy that you're doing hmm. is helping people along those yeah. lines. So I wanted to ask too about your particular areas of focus. Uh, Dr. Nate, I'll ask you first, you, you gave us a little bit of info on um, some of the first responder stuff and, and so oh, are we allowed to point out stuff? Rami's like fun focus, his unintentional fun focus <laughs> that yeah. if anyone who's, who's listening right now has an intense fear of clowns, Dr. Nader is Rami the Rami is Dr. Nader and Mike is Dr. Pepto. Yes. So yeah. he's a, you, I, you are. Sorry, I, I couldn't I, help myself. I am <laughs> apparently a world-renowned expert in fear of clowns. Are you, are you an accidental world expert? Yep. <laughs> yeah. A- and he's my hero. You know, it's one, of the, it's one of those things where you get quoted in one MSNBC article from like 2013 and then, <laughs> then, and then suddenly, suddenly CNN picks up yeah. on it and then the crazy clown thing from like three or four years ago happens. Do you have to battle disreputable clown phobia experts? Uh, you know what? There are some people who there are some who, people who, who want to step in on my toes. Yeah. 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 yeah, no, that that's no. solidly yours, Doctor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I don't actually treat people with fear of clowns because nobody comes in for treatment of fear of clowns. Right. Exactly. They but just avoid clowns. Yes. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, Dr. Nader, was you've been producing these little um, online videos yeah. mm-hmm. that are really, really good and helpful. They, you know, I remember a recent one on um, anhedonia. That's how yeah. you say it, right? Yeah. Um, but might be PTSD or general ang- generalized anxiety disorder. Tell us about how you've kind of interacted with people and how that's picked up. Yeah. Um, it, like I said earlier, my practice has sort of shifted in recent years to be doing more assessments. So I'm doing less therapy. So... Mm. Um, I was thinking sort of in the middle of the summer of 2020, I was thinking, is there any way that I can be sort of reaching out and helping people because I'm not doing it sort of as much in my day-to-day therapy practice? And so one of the things about cognitive behavioral therapy that that works really well is that it is, it's a skills-based form of therapy. So for a lot of people, they don't actually need the full therapy experience. All they need is the tools and the skills. And so I thought... I'll just start making videos, essentially explaining the same things that I explain to my clients in therapy sessions. And that way, for people who just need the information, they can readily access access it and... Hopefully and the response they can has benefit. been fantastic. Response has been remarkable. I'm, I'm almost up to 10,000 subscribers oh now. My and it's, uh, well, it's which is, awesome. I, mean, I, I it's kind offended. of do both things when you say that. I'm like, that's excellent. Oh, that's so brutal. Because yeah. it means there's this, there's a real audience. Well, yeah. yeah, I was just going to say, I think that, that one of the things that that shows is that, that people need like help. And you were talking, yeah. I think, earlier before we were recording about there being a bit of like a two-tiered yeah. um, healthcare system that there's a lot of people who could really benefit from the the type of um, psychology that, that you and Dr. Papsworth practice and just aren't able to to get in. There's just not enough psychologists. There's not enough time yeah, to actually help. There's, that's also cost. a very big thing. I mean, therapy, yeah. and I'm a huge proponent of it, it's expensive. Yeah. As I mean, it should be. It's worth it. Um, but I, I think that the well, videos that you've been making have been have been really helpful for a lot of people who maybe we'll, um, couldn't access it. Yeah, we'll, we'll throw make sure there's access to that through. Yeah. The well, and, and one of the things I, I think about is that like psychologists don't own this information, right? Like it's <laughs> right. not it's not mm-hmm. it's not ours. It's not sort of uh, you know our intellectual property. It's it's information that that belongs to the world and essentially being able to give it to people and allow them to sort of benefit Just from it, access it without you knowing even who they are. Exactly. Yeah. What, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I've watched a number of them and I'm, I really appreciate them. And, and uh, uh, our listeners will be able to 
through this episode, um, go and find some of those. Yeah, uh, they, they are really they're really good. Actually, and I say that not just because he's uh, <laughs> my friend. Because I'll be honest, but uh, it's because I'm sitting right here. He's uh, had no guest yeah. stars. You haven't guest starred in any of them. We no, no, no. We don't. Uh, I don't filter very easily. So <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't want. So me. having said that, my next question is for right. you. Um, you work with kids and families, as, as we've said. I do. Uh, I would imagine there's been a real growing awareness of mental health in children. Yes. Um, do you think, so I would suppose your, your way of thinking about that would be, that's always been present, it's just we're more aware of it now? Yes. So we can think back to our own childhoods, our own mental health stuff when we were kids, and most of us would never have gone, you know, to receive... Uh, therapy or care or whatever but so Mm -hmm. there must but at the same time what I was uh, thinking about was you know as someone who like our kids are 24 and 22 now but um, if you have a child say an elementary school child that is experiencing uh, not even crippling anxiety right but disruptive anxiety and uh, doesn't want to go to school or has something else and like like for a parent I can look at those who are gathered here like it's one of the worst things you can feel is to see yeah. your child in distress like that. How do you help families through that? You must see that all the time. All the time. Yeah, literally that uh, day in and day out. Um, well, I, I, it's funny. I know we're going to be talking about hope. Um, one of the things I offer them is the provision of hope. So um, what you know, Dr. Nader has provided for adults in videos um, is just like it is. It is. We. I always say to people, it's like, so your child is going to hit 16 and we're going to expect them uh, to read. And that's fair because we taught them when they were younger how to read. They're going to hit 16 and experience anxiety or depression or one of the very common mental health problems. And whether it's clinically diagnosable or just they go through a tough time, um, when did we teach them the mm. skills to cope with right. it? Um, so I, I, you know, I will, will not get on my soapbox, but I'm like, uh, we there is a shortage of services, and it's like I I would love if we had um, you can and they have they have some programs in schools, um, but there aren't many of them because uh, you can teach kids as young as you know five and six some basic skills for and you see some um, kids who who obviously have yeah, yeah. picked up those skills and absolutely. it's interesting to hear how they the the way they speak changes yeah absolutely but you can, I I can see kids I'm like oh you've received some therapy right some help yeah. Well, that's what I say. I say the only people that walk around knowing to challenge the assumptions in their own head are people that have been told by psychologists to challenge some of right. the assumptions in their yeah. own head hmm. um, yeah. or that have read one of the you know the commercially available um, things. But uh, yeah, so it's... At, at the same time, it, like I, I guess in any medical field or field of psychology or for those of us interested in faith, and it's the people who aren't coming to see you or who are unable to do so, who are, you know, there there obviously are still cases where instead of seeking help for a child, a parent might just yell at their child, just yeah. get better. Just, you know, I wasn't, you know, when I was a kid, it was, and that knowing kind of what's all in the background or the other huge part of that iceberg must be something that, that you think about as well. Yeah, I do. And that's why, uh, you know, like getting the information out there so that it's because as, as uh, yeah, I want to say my esteemed colleague, Dr. Nader, um, <laughs> has, uh, <laughs> just call me Rami. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Has this dude here, um, uh, said it's like the vast majority of people don't necessarily need intense clinical, uh, information, uh, and intervention. You know, I literally this week, uh, had a client who I, uh, I, I said, okay, 
you know how your neighbors and stuff are complaining about the smell coming from your laundry. Have you thought about a hamper with a lid? And he's like, wow, you can do that? And he's, I was like, yeah, you can. You so you can. Can. now, now arguably, I didn't, he didn't need my years of graduate school to <laughs> suggest that. That wasn't covered in one of your courses? It, it wasn't. That oh. Laundry uh, hygiene was left out. That's something I picked up along the way myself. So, um, But it, it to be able to... It, infiltrate for lack of a better yeah. word get that stuff out there so that people because I, I actually i think most parents are out there trying yeah. their yeah. best with what they have i'm a new parent i have a, a you know a 10 month uh, old and uh and i'm somebody who is not prone to much in the way of anxiety and i'm freaking terrified half the time i'm like you know <laughs> and, and, I know, and i know how <laughs> resilient kids are its limit. So. <laughs> oh <laughs> absolutely the joy of it all right? absolutely i'm yeah. uh, um so in in your practices uh you guys you guys have touched a little bit on like some of some of the things that that clients have 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 come to you for and we've had we've had some great examples of that um i i wonder if if you would be able to maybe identify whether uh a lot of the the cases that you guys that you guys are seeing have to do with kind of like a fear of the future i know that that can be like with anxiety or you you hear i've i've read about people who are literally have anxiety over climate change and it's debilitating mm-hmm. and do you think that that's a big factor in a lot of your work a uh, big time in, in psychology <laughs> yes. we uh, there's a there's a concept called intolerance of uncertainty and it is mm-hmm. the fuel that drives all worry. Um, you can co- essentially consider worry as uh, essentially a phobia of uncertainty. And so um, intolerance of uncertainty is kind of like a, a psychological allergy to uncertainty. So if you think about how, uh, how an allergy works, if I'm allergic to dust, all it's going to take is for there to be just a little bit mm-hmm. of dust in a room. I walk into that room it causes a big allergic reaction on my part. Whereas somebody else who's not allergic to dust walks into that same room, has no reaction at all. Hmm. People who are prone to worry, um, who have this intolerance of uncertainty, essentially a fear of the future because the future is uncertain. All it takes is for there to be just a little bit of uncertainty in the world, in their situation, and it will cause a big emotional reaction on their part. So what we do in psychology isn't to aim at figuring out ways of making their lives more certain. Well, right? because that's not really going to actually ultimately help but, them. But people try. Nor is it possible. But, 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 that, but, but that's <laughs> yes, what people I, try, I, right? Yeah, I do like, think that is like the natural tendency. You, you try to control situations. You try to gather information. You try to avoid situations that are uncertain. Yeah. It's all designed to try and build certainty. Senses of control. And control. So yeah. feel better. And yeah. Because once I have certainty or control, then I know everything's going to be okay. But ultimately, you're never going to have enough certainty hmm. because you can never have certainty. You'll never know what the future is. And so the more you keep striving to try and huh. gain that certainty, the more you're just fueling That's this crazy. notion that uncertainty is dangerous. Uncertainty is a bad thing. Hmm. Yeah, we, it's funny. We spend a lot of time separating out uncertainty versus danger or scary versus dangerous. I still remember... Huh. My first year um, practicum, we, we have strange eating habits that you develop. You work with people with contamination OCD. <laughs> and uh, I very oftentimes, you know, now I've, I will adopt this. I'll have a client and I'll say, okay, so I'll, I'll take, a, you know, a, take a little item of food and I will rub it on my shoe, bottom of my shoe and bottom of their shoe. And, 
and whatnot. And I will say to them in the process, um, this is uncomfortable for me, um, but it's not dangerous in separating those out. Now, huh. it's a little disingenuous because after all these years, it's not even uncomfortable for me anymore. Mm. <laughs> it's a little bit it frightening. It might have been once, but... <laughs> it, yeah. The very yeah. first time I did it, and yeah. I was not told, I was a practicum student in my you know, double-breasted suit, and, and suddenly <laughs> I, I wanted to say, you want me to do what? But there was a client there. Yeah. And uh, so, um, but yeah, you learn. And it's so much of what we're talking about is um, anxiety is kind of like your, you know, we've all heard car alarms go off. Uh, hmm. I don't know very many people who've had a car alarm, seen a car alarm go off or heard a car alarm go off when the car is actually being stolen. Yeah. There's a lot of false the al- alarms. Exactly. Huh. The alarm is designed to protect the car from danger. It's not designed to go off when you're, giving a speech or when you're near a clown or, you know, or any of those other, other things, when it goes off and triggers fight or flight, your body says, I'm in danger. Hmm. I'm in deep danger. Um, and so you, yeah. the natural thing is wanting to, uh, to avoid, to get away from that. And then when you do, oh, you calm down and you think you've actually avoided something and you haven't. And so as, right. as uh, Rami was saying, it's like, and it's this pursuit of not being safe, but feeling, feeling safe. safe. That's huh. the key thing. I, my, uh, my dear mom, maybe someday she'll listen to this uh, podcast, is terrified <laughs> of mice. And when she occasionally sees a mouse in her home, my 81-year-old mom will climb up on the counter. The mouse, the mouse is scary, but not dangerous. The counter is right. dangerous yes. and for scary for us. So... But it's but it's it's profound. It's absolutely that's profound. A, that's so. a good description. So, yeah. are have you guys seen this um, heightened at all in in the last year in in clients that you've been dealing with? Like, ha- has there actually been a shift in in some of this uncertainty or potentially like a despair about the future that has been related to kind of the times that we're sitting in right now? Between there's there's a lot of like. Uh, societal unrest, mm-hmm. there's a lot of political unrest, and then we've got a fun pandemic on top of it all. Like, have you have you found that that's exacerbated stuff that people would maybe be a little, you know, their alarms would go off a little more. Yeah. Of yeah. Absolutely. Because quite frankly, the world is more uncertain yeah. than, than it has. Like, so, so there's, there's a, reason. There's a, yeah, exactly. So there's some, there's some legitimate reason to it. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, I explain this to, to families, human beings are strange biological creatures. We've, our, our brains, our cerebral cortices get more and more complicated and convoluted as we evolve in these incredible supercomputers. And we still have the same arousal system that we've had forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And stress, like dealing with the genuine uncertainty, works on the same bodily systems mm. as anxiety. So you get people, I've had people come in and say, oh, my anxiety is just really, it's really triggered again. It's really, it's gone off. I can't seem to manage. And I talk to them, I'm like, no, you're, you're stressed. Yeah. Yeah. You lost your job. So your body's actually behaving appropriately. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you, you know, you know that feeling intimately because mm. it feels like anxiety. Yeah. I had a question along those lines and, and we'll put a link to the article in, but I read an article, I shared it with you guys, mm-hmm. in Forbes magazine or something, it was like on Apple News, mm-hmm. um, that it was a group of, what were they called? 
oh, behavioral anthropologists or yeah, something. Biological and anthropologists. Biological there anthropologists. we go. I found it. Awesome. <laughs> and they they were kind of presenting. They weren't saying it has to be this way, but they were yeah. asking questions, saying, "We now have a word for a number of these things called like with disorder on the end, right?" right? Yeah. So, so um, well, you know, generalized anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder. disorder PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, ADHD, all these things. And their suggestion, I don't think they were saying for everything, but was that it might help us to be able to consider, you know, what's a disorder and go back to your, like the same responses as, Mm. you know, biologically and evolutionarily for, for ages. Um, Are some of these things an appropriate kind of like adaptive response to what's going on? Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know what yeah. you thought about some of those questions. Y- you know, f- for me, one of the things I'll often talk with my clients about is that in our society, we tend to overpathologize emotion, right? Mm. Y- you should never feel anxious. You should never feel depressed. You should never feel angry. And if you do, you need to take this medication yeah. or you need to... Huh. Like even uh, grief is now... In e- the, exactly, right? In and the, so... They've put a statute of limitations on grief. Yeah. So, so the, uh, the idea is that sometimes... We mean in the DSM, sorry. In the right, DSM, yeah. yeah. Sometimes... No in-law. So <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, you know what? It, it is normal to feel... And it, it, it is normative to feel anxious in a particular situation. Uh, one of the examples I'll give to my clients who are dealing with just like an awful job, terrible job, awful boss, uh, hate going to work every day, it's stressing them out. And I say to them, look, if my job were to come in every day and put my hand on the table and hit it with a hammer, there's only so much cognitive <laughs> behavioral therapy that he, I can do. He doesn't do. use a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's only so much uh, cognitive restructuring or relaxation training mm-hmm. that I can do. The solution isn't to learn how to cope better mm-hmm. with hitting myself in the hand with the hammer. The solution is to stop hitting myself in the hand with the hammer. Yeah. So we pathologize the huh. anxiety condition when it's actually the situation yeah, that's, that's pathological. Talking about. Yeah. yeah, I remember reading, and it, it was like a, a tweet, so there's, well, but this person who had said, like, you know, I've, I've gone to therapy, I've, I've been on, on some medications, he's like, and nothing has helped my mental health better than getting a better job, having more financial security, and having a, like, better kind of, like, balance between my work life and my home life, like, nothing has helped more than that, so, like, you can't, like, I I hear what you're saying is, like, yeah, yeah, Yeah. take the hammer away, and, which is not always possible, no, no, it's not, so, so where do those sorts of lines cross? Because you, because you talk about how like emotions, like like fear, like anxiety, like stress, are aren't bad, and we should be okay to feel them. At what point does that actually cross into something that people should be getting some level of help with, though? Uh, well, uh, there's usually kind of two uh, criteria for that. One is it's causing you a lot of distress, right? Mm-hmm. Like if it's so. If it's something and and that it's it's persisting, so I think it's so I guess three criteria. It's persisting, it's causing you a level of stress that's too much for mm-hmm. you to handle that uh, or that you don't want to handle, um, and or it's interfering with your functioning in your day to day life. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, it's uh, I was because I work a lot with people with uh, ADHD, and it's the difference between energetic and hyperactive is functioning for the most part um it is like we have a a colleague who has limitless energy and it's delightful um and but some of the kids i work with it's extraordinarily um challenging for them to function 
Um, and mm. it, talking about the, the difference, the discrepancy between what the environment demands and what you're able to produce, the reality is, is it is what the environment is demands. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So like people with uh, unmedicated ADHD have something like seven times the motor vehicle accident rate right? Mm. because we did develop cars and, you know, we're required to stay yeah, relatively it, it, on um, the road. So. It, the biological anthropologist yes. in this article used, I think, ADHD as an example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, a, a young boy who we now, you know, diagnosed with ADHD, they used to just be considered like, oh, they were a bad kid. And then, we're, and then they say, now we say, okay, they have a disorder. And their kind of, I guess their presentation was to say, in what, in what right. cases, some of those cases, that's a, an appropriate response to some kind of yeah. stimulus that's going on. Yeah. And I guess that would be the distinction with the word disorder. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I, think the, um, I think the thing I would add is that the, in a disorder, it's, it's disproportionate yeah. to the situation. Yes. The emotional mm. reaction is disproportionate to the situation or it's inappropriate to the situation. Ah, so for yeah. example, yeah. Um, a... A soldier who's in war on the battlefield, that hyper arousal, hyper awareness and uh, sort of of their environment is really, really adaptive in that situation. You take them out of the battlefield right. and you bring them home and mm. they have that same level of hyper arousal like and hyper awareness. Shell shock or something. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. That that isn't proportional. So it made it made real good sense to approach it that way when you're on the battlefield, but it doesn't really make a in whole your, lot of sense yeah. exactly. when you are actually <laughs> yeah. safe in your yeah. family environment. Yeah. I, or or you know, the client who um, you know, you, oh, your hands get dirty or sticky. Oh, sure, wash them. You know, spend, you know, 30 seconds, even maybe a minute washing them. But hours washing them until your hands are mm. raw and bleeding, um, you know, bleaching your computer, um, mm. doing these sorts of things. It's it's so typically what we think of as a disorder and what we see is just so beyond the pale. Mm. Or, yeah, I'm sure. Or when it's not actually connected to the response. I find yeah. a remarkable number of kids develop things like OCD in response to like the, the, the health of one of their parents is threatened. Uh, the parent yeah. gets in an accident yeah. or has mm-hmm. cancer. Well, that's a very uncontrollable thing. So, okay, my brain is capable of these incredible mental gymnastics. I will hyper control this little area of the world. Yeah. R- certain rituals. Totally unrelated. And then yeah. I will make uh, that. And that will make my like parents okay. Somehow yeah. I'll use oh. I'll then my lines of superstition. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've seen um, and it's, it's challenging. Yeah. And those are hard to, to poke at because who would want to take the risk? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Uh, one of the things that both Allison and I were reading and we were interviewing um, a gentleman named John Swinton um, mm-hmm. about this, and you must see this all the time, especially um, Dr. Nader when you're talking about diagnosis, that a diagnosis is mm. a positive but also presents some challenges, I would imagine. Um, tell us about that. Like people would be like, there, there must be people who are really happy to be diagnosed but yeah. then it also comes with some challenges. Well, th- I mean, the thing about diagnoses is they're, they're just constructs. They're just a collection of symptoms to help us understand uh, what a person is experiencing and give us a bit of, of shorthand. So when we're communicating with each other, uh, we have a sense of what this person's going through. But, but I mean, you look at some of the diagnostic criteria for PTSD, um, for example, you can have like hundreds of variants of PTSD hmm. because you need two of this type of symptom, two of this type of symptom, one of this type of symptom, Mm -hmm. and two of this type of symptom. And so you can have this whole sort of 
all sorts of different types yeah. of PTSD. So they're just constructs to help us understand. What I find sometimes with the search or the desire for a diagnosis is that people will lock on to a diagnosis, even if it's inappropriate. And even if it's not actually relevant to what they're experiencing. So again, I'll, I'll use the example of PTSD. I'll see a lot of people who say, I have PTSD from my divorce. I say, you, you can't actually have PTSD from your divorce because a divorce, even though it mm -hmm. is traumatic and upsetting to you, is not a criterion, a stressor, according to these diagnostic criteria. Mm. But no, I have PTSD related to my divorce. It's almost like that becomes, it's almost like, that right. become, that explains why huh. their life explains is the way everything. it is. It explains like, right, everything. Right, right. I have ADHD. Cause. I, I, I'm ADHD, and then the kind of and it's the ADHD. Totalizing. It's yeah. the ADHD hmm. that is the explanation or the reason for my my why my life isn't the way right. I want it to be. Huh. Do yeah. you do you find that you sometimes have have clients who are hesitant um, about a diagnosis? Like I I I would think that th there are some. There are some diagnoses, I'm not sure if that's the plural, yeah. diagnoses, diagnoses. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that come with a really heavy stigma. Yeah. Yes. Things um, like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Borderline personality disorder. Yeah, yeah. things that people, yeah, I would assume. Not a assume, lot of people running around, I well, have narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so like there's part where at, at what point is, is diagnosis maybe helpful or unhelpful in some of those, some of those cases? Well, I think, I mean, for me, there's various situations when diagnoses are are helpful, right? Mm -hmm. So using the example of the insurance policy thing, for example, mm -hmm. they will uh, often require that there has there to be has a to diagnosis. Be exactly. So you give a diagnosis. Yeah. Um, in other times, it's I'm, I'm coming up with this diagnostic formulation to help me guide my treatment plan. Mm -hmm. Because uh, just because this person's having panic attacks, it's important for me to have a sense of why they're having that, those panic attacks. So the way I treat panic attacks and panic disorder is going to be different than the way I'm going to treat those panic attacks if the panic attacks are in the context of PTSD. Mm. So it's important for me to make that diagnosis to determine is this panic disorder versus PTSD because the treatments are going to look very different. That's good. Yeah. So they're, they're to echo what you said earlier, they're communication tools at, yeah. at their best. I say often say to clients, I'm less interested in your diagnosis and more interested in your problem. Um, because uh, it's unfortunate you use the word variance, but uh, yeah, because you can have two people that have the same <laughs> diagnoses, but different problems. And so I yeah. try to get at what that is. That's good. And I also yeah. say to them, because some people... Some people, the diagnosis is a comfort. They're like, yeah. okay, that makes sense. Mm. I now understand. And there's <gasps> other people Finally that have know. Others feel awful about it. And I say... Yeah. Now I'll never escape this. I, I say, just so you know, yeah. like you are the same person yeah. as you were mm. before I met you. I've just given you uh, so a, way of a way of understanding it or a way of like yeah. explaining it. But it's just, it's a, as Rami said, it's, it's a construct. It's a... It's a tool. I, I, like, um, I like both, um, like the mm -hmm. aspects, how you both answer. So uh, before we go to our question that we ask at the end of most Ep episodes, most episodes. Um, I know this is really simplistic, but I'm sure you have some <laughs> things that you would suggest. What are some really simple things? So we're not talking about a diagnosis now. So you could look at a range of disorders or what can we do um, that you know that if you just do this, this, and this, that will help in terms of your mental health. Okay, well, um, I always tell my clients to imagine yourself kind of like a car. And as you go about throughout your day, um, there's things that are taking fuel out of, out of your fuel tank. And mm. that's not bad. Like, you, you need 
the fuel to do your job, to take care of your kids, to make dinner, that sort of thing. Um, so there's lots of things that you can identify that are taking fuel out of your tank, but it's important to think about what are the things that you're doing to put the fuel back into your tank, right? So thinking about your life in terms of, is my lifestyle sustainable? Mm -hmm. And so really easy to think about all the things that take the fuel out, but what are the things that are putting the fuel back into your tank? So really simple things like number one thing that you can do for your mental health is regular physical exercise, yeah. right? Uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, Social contact, um, uh, having fun, right? We, yeah. we live in a society where, where for some people it feels like having fun is uh, almost childish a or, not, not or, serious. or a yeah. luxury or yeah. I'll have fun. The term guilty pleasure. Yeah. yeah. I hate that. Yeah. I'll have fun once I've done all of my mm. responsibilities and chores. Have you ever gotten to a point in your life where you stopped and looked around and said, hey, I have no it's responsibilities perfect. right now. <laughs> it's perfect. Uh, so, so having fun, doing those hobbies, those things that you used to enjoy doing, having some balance in terms of work and life, like keeping work in its place and mm. having time outside of, of work. So just kind of the, the basic, think about the things that make you feel good, that mm. put energy into your tank and do those things and make sure that you're doing those things and don't sacrifice those things um, for, you know, just got to get through this project. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. And before we get to Mike's response on that final question, um, no, I, this is okay. I know you mm -hmm. and I know you do those things. Yeah. Like I, I know from your life that you make sure you get regular physical exercise, that you keep the lines as, you know, as clear as you can mostly between that work-life balance. And so this isn't something you're telling like, you well, know, a patient or a client. You, this not is, doing. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. Anyway, you're But, uh, but I, I, I disagree. I know him well too. And um, <laughs> he, he, he doesn't get regular physical exercise. He runs to work and back. Yeah. Um, that's weird. I'm okay. Just, I'm <laughs> say. Remy and I are friends um, on Strava. I see how much he runs. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> When he runs past my car, I'm like, okay. I like tonight's uh, run so. run name was podcast night. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Ah, I like it. I like uh, it. Um, love, uh, I should have been taking notes. Love the example of what uh, fuels up your, your car tank. And um, it's, uh, yeah, they're all accurate. I can't, like I, I say to my clients, if, uh, if all of you engaged in regular physical uh, activity, I said, you know, at least a third of you, probably half, would uh, would drop out, and mm. that'd be great. I'd be thrilled for you. You'd still have enough um, clients. Yes. Sa sadly, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sadly, yeah. Um, sleep. We yeah. do not care enough about sleep. We don't take enough to, like the importance of sleep. Um, it's it's crazy, and it's funny because I work with teens. Um, after you know, babies and toddlers teenagers it's the second most important uh period of growth and development and need for sleep and yet does anybody in this room has anybody ever met uh somebody that's won an argument with a teenager about sleep um and some of that is just because they can survive without it uh right. you know and and uh, or with on less of it and some of it is so much of it though these days is uh, modeling from their parents, like uh, yeah. the parents are like always like, oh, I got to get this done or get or this the done. The devices are always so, on or something. Yeah, yeah mm. the devices are, uh, and that's something I would say. It's uh, it's funny. I'm glad you said fun because fun is so important. Yeah. Fun is like to it is our life's blood to keep us going, especially during these crazy times. Because in uncontrollable times, control what you can control. Yeah. Like do what you can do and enjoy what you can enjoy. Um, but, uh, mm. 
uh, yeah, and I lost my train of thought about what the other thing was. No. Oh, the devices. Oh, yeah, devices. The devices it's, are not always as fun as they seem. It, yeah, <laughs> the devices are such a double-edged sword yeah. because... They're more um, of a, just a distraction than every, fun. Yeah, yeah, every time I can't remember a bit of trivia that, uh, you know, I was trying to remember, well, I can Google it, I can do yeah. it. They're, they're a tremendous resource, and they are such an awful time uh, mm. suck. And, and it's... And, you know, I won't get on... Again, too big a soapbox here, but they they're also taking away from our social um, right and our, exercise our and engagement. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. it's uh, yeah. we we need to detox a bit from the devices. So, so before we take uh, a few questions from from our great studio audience here, we want to uh, kind of wrap up this portion of of our episode by asking, what are you hopeful about or for right now? Pepe, go ahead. Well, it, and it's funny uh, that uh, that's a question you asked because not that long ago, um, I had a client who uh, was in the grips of despair and like climate change, all these different things, because there is a lot going on mm-hmm. right now. Um, yes. and, uh, and and he was asking me about this. And, and there's a combination of my own sort of thoughts. And, you know, because I have moments where, especially with a young daughter, I'm like, hmm, yeah, what's, what's going what's on with the, the world? Um, so I pitched to him you know, some of my things about uh, where I find hope, I find hope in working with young people because so many people write them off and they're amazing. They're the ones that are, that, um, that will have to clean up some of mm-hmm. our mistakes because we're not going to change enough of it fast enough. Um, but they're so, they're the most, this is the most savvy generation, mm-hmm. tech savvy, um, it, the most, some of the, one of the most tolerant um, generations. So I take tons of hope from them. But then I put out the question on social media because I thought, well, that's just what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the response was overwhelming. So I said to this client, not only here are all these suggestions, but look to all the people that wanted to share this yeah. with you. Mm-hmm. Look to the helpers, as you know, yeah. Mr. Rogers' mom uh, taught him. Yeah. Um, so many people are so willing to to share can maybe identify with what that person's feeling and want to help look look to the community how close covid as awful as it was within weeks of it starting we all went inside and so much of us thought ah it's just going to hit people of a certain age so much of us did it thinking we were primarily doing it to keep other people safe yeah what an amazing thing Uh, well put and then the other piece is there's so much going on right now but it, I, I actually think it's because I'm, where I'm hopeful is because we're acknowledging some stuff that's been there for a long, long yeah. time. Residential school stuff, climate, like all of this. And so it's like as yucky as it feels, it's a whole lot better to be have it out in the open and be yeah. looking at it head on yeah. Um, yeah. and dealing with it and, and dealing with it in a relatively yeah. sort of united way so hmm. that's that's oh. where i get the hope from so well said thank you uh dr nader i'm um, a car example <laughs> <laughs> well i hope you'll indulge me to be a little churchy right now yeah um, i was just feeling churchy actually but <laughs> because uh, because in terms of of hope like one of the things i do in in all of my assessment reports i have to list the facts and the assumptions on which my conclusions are based and so thinking about what are kind of the facts and the assumptions that that Christians should have in terms of where we should get our hope? And so one fact and assumption is that God sees us. Hmm. And not just that God sees Christians, but that God sees everybody. And the second fact and the assumption is that God loves us. 
And not just that God loves Christians, but that God loves everybody. And if you accept those two facts and assumptions, it makes tolerating uncertainty, it makes fear of the future a lot Mm. more easy to tolerate. And so, you know, ultimately, my worldview is that things are going to be okay. Right. Mm. And it's, it may not be okay tomorrow. Yeah. It may not be okay six months from now. It may not be okay five years from now. But eventually things are going to be okay because we have a God who sees us and we have a God who loves us. So now, as a psychologist, it's not my job yeah. to tell my clients that they have a God who right. loves them, a God who sees <laughs> them. Um, but I know. But you're holding that. But I know mm. that God loves them, and I know that God That's sees so them. That's so good. And yeah. so you and have hope for them. And so, yeah. so I, I can phrase it as, you know what, we're, we're going to tolerate uncertainty, and we're going to challenge negative beliefs that you have about yourself, uh, the world, other people, uh, your future. Um, and we're going to sort of tolerate what's going to happen. And even if bad things do happen, uh, we're going to figure out ways of problem solving it. That's essentially just a different way of saying yeah. that I know that mm. God loves you and God sees you. Thank you so much. So sure. that's where that's where I sort of get my Thank hope. Thank you from. so much. I remember one time I was working with a, an individual who was found themselves in um, effectively like solitary confinement in psychiatric care. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't an adult yet either, and so there were all kinds. And this went on for a long time. I'm sure you guys have seen these kinds of cases. And it got pretty severe, and, and some of the things that people do in those situations, just to have some kind of agency, right, yeah. can be really, really brutal mm-hmm. and kind of... And I remember thinking, it's a little bit of what you're talking about, Remy, that uh, uh, from a faith perspective, and I was confident that it was, whether they could articulate it this way or not, the staff, I remember thinking and praying, I hope there are people who interact with this young man who feel that he is created in the image of God. Yeah. Mm. however they would articulate that Mm -hmm. because that will give a larger hope beyond kind of the circumstance so well thank you both so much we're going to take some questions we'll take a little break we'll stretch and stuff yeah so thanks uh dr nader and dr papsdorf we're just going to take a few questions from our small (laughs) studio rami and mike thank you um we're just going to take a few questions from our (laughs) same client sorry uh said dr papsdorf sounds like a german uh, German gynecologist. So it's like, uh, <laughs> like every time, every time people you know, say that now, thank you now for I'm like, saying that because you know, and uh, okay, so that's Mike. why the kids call me Doctor Mike. So we're going to take a few questions <laughs> for um, our two doctors, uh, and our cupboard master Ken Bell has joined us. Hello, hi Ken. It's great to be. You've been part of the studio you. audience, yes, and you've compiled some questions, taken them from other studio audience members. That's correct. I have, and you're going to read some out and edit them appropriately now. I will. So, um, yeah, we have a few questions. We'll see if we get to all of them. Some of them we've we've touched around the edge of the subject a little bit. So the first one I want to ask is we uh, present is one that we haven't really touched on. But one of the people has written, as a retail worker, how can I support our community? And I imagine to uh, staff at a time like this. So how can someone who's, you know, working in the community, working uh, in retail, how can they be, is there anything they can do to be helpful either to the people coming in or even to their, the rest of their team or their staff uh, in the midst of all the stuff that's going on? I think specifically this is looking at COVID, mm-hmm. but all the other stuff too. Well, I think one of the things they can do is, is sort of recognize where, where people are at and recognize the, the varying levels. As I said, there's, there is a 
tremendous amount of uncertainty suddenly. Let's let's talk about with COVID, um, and I'm not talking about like sort of anti-vaxxers, but um, you know there are people who outdoors f- want to wear masks, even though the transmission rate outdoors is is almost negligible, right? Like when with enough distance. So, um, and there are people who have different circumstances because I. I, I say this, you know, I I um I was in Alberta last week or a couple of weeks ago. I'm sorry. And uh, I I wore I was like one of the few people who wore a mask into Walmart, and people were looking at me, and somebody said, "Dude, you know we've been vaccinated," and I'm like, "Hmm." <laughs> I have a child at home, and so and I just brushed it off, and I thought I'm leaving this province. Um, <laughs> but but in like so many uh, so many retail workers who are another version of like they're they're not healthcare directly but they're, but they're front they line are frontline yeah. yeah and they have kept going during uh all of this be just kind to them and tolerate them and respectful of them whatever they're mm-hmm. you know uh, i would imagine too if if they're getting hollered at by someone that part of supporting them there we've been talking among some of the you know group i work with about has is there a change coming in terms of like the customer is always right yeah. If if you're yeah. a manager and somebody is like abusing one of your employees, it maybe is okay. I, I mean, I don't know the company policy or whatever, but to yeah. say, you know what, it's it's okay if you're not our customer. Absolutely, uh, I'm support here to, them. Yeah, yeah, support, support them. We're like staff. that with our uh, receptionist. It's like if you come in and you mm. you know are disrespectful or unpleasant to our res- our uh, receptionist, um, we're not that interested in you being a client. It, and within reason like right, we recognize right. sometimes it, it is part of their exactly, problem that's yeah. going on there but um we're we're very so i mean yeah protect the staff um if you're if you're in a store i say more than it, this is important all the time but thank them i yeah. thank i still thank you know the person who sells me the shoes thank you for doing this and still whatnot uh and they kind of look at me like it's a bit strange because it doesn't happen but it's like you're important. Like you're helping me out. You're, you know. I, I think another thing that can be done specifically for the staff is uh, for them to have opportunities to debrief and to just sort of talk yeah. about, you know, yeah, I've had this, I had this person like screaming at me and just to, to give them opportunities where they can talk with other staff members and just be able to just vent and debrief it and, mm-hmm. and uh, get it out so they're not having to sit with it and then go home with it and then have to sort of talk to somebody at home yeah. about, yeah, this guy was screaming at me because his latte was like regular milk instead of like yeah. half milk or whatever. I thought we agreed not to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a good good response. This next one picks up a bit on uh, from where Rami left us off with uh, his his sort of reflection on God and and uh, seeing and loving, uh, but where does that come in as someone who's a as, as a as a Christian as a therapist employed by Vancouver Coastal Health? Uh, this person is expected to present a neutral stance uh, in terms of religion and faith, and that's fine. But as a Christian, uh, I you know I would like some ideas about how one can can incorporate the idea of a hopeful gospel without saying hopeful gospel? How can I reflect <laughs> the light of Christ in my practice? How, how, how can that be reflected without being really, you know, overt and in people's faces? And so, Rami, maybe for you, this is, this is one you can yeah. take a swing at. I, I mean, I, I've always bristled at, and I've corrected anyone who's ever referred to me as a Christian psychologist, 
uh, right. or a Christian counselor because I'm not. I am a psychologist who happens to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a big difference um, between the two. I think in terms of, uh, in terms of, you know, how do you, how do you sort of live the gospel out in terms of your behavior, in terms of working as a, as a mental health worker, you just do your job and you do your job to the best that you can. You use your training that you received and you treat that person the best that you can and you treat them like you would treat anybody else um, that you're caring for and treating. So it's essentially using the skills and the training that has been provided to you that sort of God has essentially provided to you uh, to, to help people. So um, I kind of liken it to uh, if I'm going in for surgery, I don't care if the surgeon is Christian or Muslim or Hindu or whatever. I just want them to be a good surgeon. Um, and so I want whatever their spiritual beliefs to be that they, that they do the best job that they can. Well put. Yeah. yeah. That's well put. Um, so this next one talks about the social isolation because of COVID. You both talked about that as being a big challenge. We've been mm-hmm. driven inside. We've been stuck with people. Uh, at the same time, <laughs> I mean, we've been we've been privileged to spend more mm-hmm. time than we anticipated with certain people. Uh, do you? And but at the same time, the issue of social media and a lot of people have been increasing their use of social media and just being online. Uh, and do you think those that is actually even adding to the concept of social distancing and isolating behavior using a lot of these forms of social media and and uh, and that. So where is it helpful? Where is it You've not helpful? Teens. A- absolutely. In fact, like social media is funny because it's um, I think of it a lot of times as anti-social media, right? Like it's there are ways in which when you use it, like some of my uh, kids, I work with a lot of children on the autism spectrum. And it's brilliant for them. And it allows them to make connections that they would not otherwise make um, in so many circumstances. But it also, it it creates a distance in the sense that um, people tend to be on social media, tend to be, you don't get the nuances of communication in the same way. Um, people, are, people are willing to say things on social media they might not say um, in person. Um, people tend to be more extreme. And so you get a lot of, uh, and just like a lot of sort of disconnect from, like I say, a tool that was designed to bring people um, together. So I think probably it's interesting. I think of the the best sort of social media. So many of my clients are on these little um, things, Roblox and different things that are, that basically the social media part of it is the chat function, Mm. right? It's not this, it's not news and all this stuff. It's just a, it allows them to talk to people in a way that they're, they're comfortable with, but Absolutely, mm. it has increased the um, the isolation in the sense of like you know that somehow we're different people because of what we like and don't like. And I think it contributes to tremendous senses of inadequacy in people mm. because um, what What's people on display? what people yeah. post on social media is the highlight reel of their life, right? What and you so mean that? That's not really what their family looks like. Yeah. They're not so always no, friendly and no. laughing and tickling each yeah. other and whatever. Right. We, we have access. We look at the yeah, we look at the behind the scenes video of our own life and compare it to the highlight yeah. reel of So else. so they've yeah, got right. so so you're just seeing what somebody else is posting. You know how how much of a mess your life is. And so 
uh, you may post this stuff that, you know, oh, look, you know, me and my wife are having a wonderful dinner out. And, and you know that you've just had like a big fight that night. <laughs> Meanwhile, all you're seeing on everybody else's is just like their marital bliss and how their children are so wonderful and they love each other. And so you're seeing... All untrue. You're seeing right. everybody else's life as so put together and it's impossible to live up to that standard. Is that what they call doom scrolling? I've never heard of. No, I'm not sure. What's doom scrolling? Oh, so somebody's shaking. I, their I head. would go- I would Google it, but I don't want to take up my phone. Oh, right something now. much worse. <laughs> it, it is. It is funny. Just the when you were just saying that, I was thinking about the whole. Um, you know, whenever we've pre-COVID, when you know, like people would go to other people's houses. Um, you know, my wife would always say, "Oh, their house is so clean," and it's like. Yeah, they probably clean up like we do before someone comes over. Yeah. It's like, I don't assume, I, and maybe I'm wrong, but I never assume people's houses are in the same state most of the time as they our are houses, when... Our house actually is read that there's a, there's a, there was a study a few years ago that there's a cor- actually a correlation between people who post fantastic things about their relationships yes. and troubled relationships. Yes. Yeah. Other, the more they post about how great the relationship is, yeah. the more of a correlation between... Well, yeah, happy, secure people don't have to... Race those things. It's like, you yeah. know, or don't seek validation. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's yeah. the it's the bragcation photos, right? Can you had yeah one, you one, one more, more question. one more question. So, uh, and this this touches on uh, parents and young children and just holding space for them and and how do we help and encourage them? So during the season of extra uncertainty, how do we as parents of young children uh, hold space for joy and hope for 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 our kids when we ourselves are maybe struggling what's interesting is it it's i get the context of the question but it's almost almost as like you know parent as as teacher model i think of it the other way around Mm. learn from them because in the middle of the pandemic they've been having a lot more fun even even in you know these complicated circumstances um Kids adapt better than anything. I, I this is not the pandemic, but my d- teacher in all this was years ago. Did the practicum I mentioned before at uh, BC Children's Hospital in the summer, and they say to you, "So, okay, what rotations do you want? You li- you list them off. What rotations don't you want?" And I said, "Oncology, because cancer kind of scares me." So of course, hey, they gave me on oncology. oncology ward. <laughs> so first day, I'm taking the elevator up. I'm kind of nervous. I'm kind of nervous. I go up and I see the first two things I see, uh, one uh, five-year-old with this giant, you know, boom box on his shoulder. He's bald and like, you know, looks a bit sick, but he's like, he's bopping down the hallway. And another, but a 13-year-old riding his rolling IV tower like a skateboard. And I was like, yeah, how do you make the best out of circumstances? They adapt. They figure it out. They don't get, we're all, we get stuck in things. And so, so mm-hmm. taking the cue from them being sort of mindful of of the moment focusing on what you can do um you know i said it before it's like uh um you rami and i had a conversation early in the pandemic we're like geez this is tough hey people are coming in saying yeah i'm really stressed out and we're like yeah we are too um (laughs) like what do we tell you at this point do you have any suggestions can i tell you about my (laughs) yeah exactly and but then you know we we were like you know what you do what you've always do you you and they they not to get too academic, but they, they talk about problem-focused coping versus emotion-focused coping. Problem-focused coping is if you, can, if you can do something directly about the problem, then, then do it. You know, go after it directly. If you can't, work on your emotional reaction to it. 
work mm-hmm. on right. you know or it's the uh, the you know the serenity prayer right yeah yeah, yeah. Oh. You know, change what you can uh, accept what you can't and I hope you get the wisdom to the difference well so. gentlemen thank you so much and cupboard master Ken Allison Amanda on the board Duke of the dog if you could hear him in the background <laughs> uh, our studio audience that's gathered here and uh, it's been great to just record something in person with uh, we used to do a lot of these in distilleries and craft breweries and such um, and during the pandemic it wound up being mostly by zoom yeah. so thank you so much for yeah. uh, having thank the confidence so to be here and for giving us these uh, uh, thoughtful considerate responses and so thanks for your time thanks everybody thank you, else thank you and, uh, <laughs> thank you guys thank you guys for coming out thank you yeah. rector's cupboard releases a new episode every other friday the podcast is a production of reflector project hosts are todd weeb and allison williams cupboard master for tastings and locations is ken bell production and social media by amanda Mina. For past episodes and other content, visit rectorscupboard.ca. Thanks for listening.